Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. The theory of evolution holds, roughly speaking, that over time, nature selects out the traits in a species that aren't helpful for it to succeed. Well, if so, why does something as not helpful, indeed often immobilizing and impenetrable as depression, continue to exist as part of the human condition? Let's get into that with, in Brighton, Michigan, Randolph Nessie, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan and author of Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, Marianne Fisher, Professor of Psychology at St. Mary's University in Halifax and an affiliate faculty member at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. And here in our studio, Paul Andrews, Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at McMaster University in Hamilton. And Paul, it's good to meet you and have you here in our studio. And to Randolph and Marianne and Points Beyond, thank you for joining us tonight as well. I want to start with a quote from Inverse.com, which is an online magazine, covers all sorts of topics like technology, science, culture, mostly for a millennial audience. And here's what they say. Depression is an evolutionary conundrum. On the one hand, it's the leading cause of disability worldwide. On the other, the genes that give rise to it have been around at least as long as modern humans have walked the earth. That means it must play a role in our survival. Okay, Marianne, to you first. An evolutionary conundrum is how they describe it. How would you characterize it? I think it's very useful to think of depression as something that is just part of the human condition. And I do agree that it's been part of our evolutionary past. And to view it as something that is negative is just needless. So the conundrum really, I think, is being encapsulated in that quotation because it's, you know, we don't like to think of it as something that could be useful or has played an important role over our entire existence, but it is part of who we are. Just like being happy and sad and fearful and angry are part of who we are. So it's it's a really mixed bag. Paul, how would you characterize it? Yeah, I really like what Marianne just said. Uh, I view depression as uh, an emotion like uh, many other uh, emotions. And what we know about um, painful feelings, painful emotions, is they all motivate us to avoid something harmful in our lives. If we uh, think about the pain that you feel when you have a sprained ankle, what it does is it motivates you to keep your weight off your ankle so you avoid further injuring it. Same thing with uh, fear. Uh, jealousy motivates you to avoid uh, an infidelity, et cetera, et cetera. What does With, depression motivate us to do? That's, the, that's where the conundrum is, as, as I see it. It's been a puzzle for uh, many of us studying depression to figure out what it is that depression motivates to us, motivates us to avoid. Um, uh, well, let me hold you off there because sure, we're yeah, going to unpack yeah, that during the course good. of our discussion. We'll get into, Randolph, I'll get you in here now. We're going to obviously get into different theories as we continue our conversation. But in your view, to what extent are we still unraveling the evolutionary mystery of why depression exists? 
Anyway, it's so wonderful to talk to my colleagues about this because we are right in the midst of trying to get this all straight. You know, everyone who studies depression has tried so desperately to find the bad genes or the spot in the brain or the neurotransmitter, and it's been disappointing. Everybody's calling for new directions, and I think we now really have one, and it's not something made up. It's the fundamental biological theory, and as Paul just said, um, we need to try to figure out why the capacity for low mood exists and why it's badly regulated sometimes. And just like he said, it's really mental pain. It seems like natural selection making us having no pain would be great, except sadly, people who are born with no pain usually are dead by the time they're 30 or 40. Hmm. So there are very useful ways, and it all depends on the situation you're in. The mystery, though, I think, is why the regulation mechanism gives us so much useless depression. All right, Paul, let's follow up on that. How does your work explain why depression exists? Um, my primary interest, uh, first of all, it's, it's important to know what we're talking about when we use the word depression. Uh, most everybody in the field understands that the word depression really applies to a collection of traits. They share sadness and the uh, loss of pleasure in common, but they differ in other uh, features. So for instance, when you get sick within an infection, that causes a type of depression. Uh, when you're starving, that also causes a type of depression. The kind of depression I'm interested in is probably one of the most clinically use, um, important ones, and that's ruminative depression. It's the uh, a depression that occurs uh, that causes you to think persistently about um, the problems that made you depressed in the first place, particularly the causes of those problems and the consequences of those problems. So that's just background for what it is that I try to study. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my research uh, is basically showing that depression, uh, rumination, these persistent thoughts, is, is a very useful thing. So uh, I have a good example of, uh, that will make intuitive sense to most of the viewers for how depressive rumination can be useful. Fire away. Okay, great. So let's imagine that uh, there's a physician uh, who has made a very serious medical error, perhaps has hurt his patient, maybe even killed the patient. Uh, most physicians, uh, if, unless they're psychopathic, would feel a lot of agony over this because their whole job is to try and help their patients. Now, errors happen within medicine. They happen, um, you know, almost every physician's gonna make a serious error at some point in their life. So anyway, they're gonna feel a lot of agony. Um, the agony will often uh, reach clinical levels. They'll show the features of depression, of anxiety, acute stress, uh, reactions, and what are they um, feeling agony over? Well, they've hurt their patient, they uh, are worried about their careers, loss of reputation, possibility of um, uh, losing their license. Okay, now that agony motivates them to do something. What is it that they are motivated to do? Hopefully to do better. Exactly, actually, what that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to avoid making a similar mistake in the future. And so they go through a, an intense thought process that actually helps them make, uh, learn where they got things wrong and to do better in the future. Okay, let me take that and put it to Marianne, which is do you think that means that people that are prone to depression are more likely to become intellectuals or thinkers. I do, and I, I really like Paul's answer there because we, we have to unpack, first of all, what we mean by depression. And I'm very glad that he took that stance because that also falls in line with uh, the work I've done. So we know that people with uh, low levels of depression, for example, tend to think very critically. They tend to break, break a big situation down into smaller 
um, maybe achievable steps even, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but they're able to, to see things in a much more realistic manner. And they, they don't have that level of optimism that can be great in terms of how it feels, but it's also quite blinding. And so depression, at least in, in the forms Paul's discussed, might be very useful to make us think intellectually about a situation, break it down into those smaller, maybe more achievable steps as we ruminate upon how to solve those things and maybe make some progress. Um, and so I, I really like that that sort of framework, and I find that it fits well with the, the research overall, in my opinion. In terms of the second part of your question, though, um, I think intellectuals, I think they do take those bigger problems, and if they're going to be um, you know, good at solving them, they have to break it down. And I think there is, therefore, that, that link between um, the, you know, the cognitive mechanisms underlying some forms of depression and maybe more intellectual routes of thinking. Randolph, let me come at this another way with you. Uh, evolution creates instincts that motivate us to do things to help our survival. Depression can lead to a lack of motivation entirely. So how would depression have been useful, evolutionarily speaking? Oh, well, good question. That puts your finger right on the conundrum, doesn't it? <laughs> and if it, if it stops you from doing things, how can that possibly be useful? But here's the way of looking at it. I mean, are there situations in which it's best to not take risks, not do things? And sure, there's lots of them. If you're in the middle of the winter, like my ancestors in an island in the North Sea, and the optimistic ones say, it's February, but I'm going to go out and find some food anyhow. I mean, those ancestors are no longer with us. Um, if you're trying to reply to school for the fifth time, you're probably wasting your energy. Um, there's a big difference between sadness, which is how we feel after a loss, and low mood and depression, which is what happens in a bunch of different situations, as Paul has emphasized, but especially when we're pursuing an unreachable goal. There's a whole sequence of unpleasant feelings that come up. For, first, you lose interest, and then you try a different strategy. If nothing works, you know, disengage motivation entirely and try something different. So when you're trying to do something that's pursuing an unreachable goal, uh, the best thing to do is try a different route, pause, wait, and if nothing works, quit. <laughs> Marianne, I see you nodding there. Can I get you to react to what you've just heard? Randy, that was so eloquent. It's, it's exactly that. You know, like, um, I have a lot of students, and when I teach about de depression and mood in my evolutionary psychology course, um, you know, a lot of them say that they want to have this fantastic occupation and they have this huge career goal. And statistics show us that that is highly um, unlikely, to put it politely. And so what we talk about is, yes, it's good to have that lofty dream. Why not? Right. But if you're going to waste all your time and energy and in pursuit of that dream and in the meantime, not get anywhere, um, that's, that's just not fruitful. And so we talk a lot about having, you know, plans A, which could be like the lofty dream, but then having plan B, C, D, and E. So you have your fallback plan, you have your less desirable plan, you have maybe your more achievable immediate feedback, get some money in plan for occupations. And I just, I think it's so useful to think about, um, you know, that sort of balance point between that, that motivating spirit of, oh, you know, in Canada, we want to do all these great things and have the best life ever, but what's actually achievable, you know? And I think if we set ourselves up for failure, we can't help but experience that devastation of a loss. So. Um, I just, I, I really appreciate that framework that Randy put in place there. Paul, does all of that fit with your view? Yeah, I mean, um, I do believe that frustrated goals are an important uh, trigger or cause of depression. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure that it 
encapsulates all the different causes of depression, but, but definitely I see a lot of um, commonality in thinking between Randy's framework and mine. So don't dream too big? Well, you know, of course, natural selection sometimes asks us to dream big. And, you know, if you don't dream big, you can never actually succeed big. It's just that, uh, you know, there a lot of stuff in life involves taking risks. And uh, if you're going to take risks, then sometimes you're going to, maybe a lot of times you're going to lose. <laughs> Randolph, let me get you to do a, sort of a um, evolutionary psychiatry 101 here with this. Depression can lead to social withdrawal. There's another theory based on observations of primates, we're told, that may explain this. So let's do that. What is social rank theory? A fellow named John Price, a wonderful psychiatrist in the UK, studied chickens, and he noticed that the chickens who lost a pecking order battle, who kept on fighting, got beat up really badly. And he pointed out that it was really best for those chickens to quit fighting. Then he did the same kind of study with monkeys, and he watched a monkey after it was taken out of a cage where it was with the females, and, and guess what? If it lost a battle and kept trying to fight, it got beat up pretty badly. So he came up with this idea of involuntary yielding, which which means um, thinking badly about yourself and excessively badly about yourself in order to you know, not keep on struggling in a status kind of conflict. And I think this is one of the situations that's very germane to depression. Marianne, do you think this applies to humans? I do. Um, my main area of research is women's competition with each other, so intersexual competition. And I think um, in light of all the recent news about social media, for example, and how women are, as young women especially, are beginning to feel um, a loss of position, right? So they're constantly ranking themselves amongst their friends or have those indirect mechanisms where they're judging themselves against others. Um, I, I do think that involuntary yielding is playing a significant role. Um, but I, I think the, the underlying part of that is still, you know, the evolutionary psychology of um, people trying to, to find the best mates possible, to form the best coalitions possible, um, and have the best prognosis for their own survival. I got to use a sports analogy here for Randolph because, and since you are uh, University of Michigan, the Detroit Red Wings never would have won oh, three Stanley Cups in six years in the 1990s with uh, the president of the Maple Leaf uh, Hockey Club as one of their star players if when the going got tough, the tough got going, if they just quit when things got too hard. So again, does this really apply to humans? So sometimes, actually, I refuse to do interviews uh, on public media because the, the interviewer will say, so doesn't your theory mean you should just quit? And of course, no. <laughs> um, the reason people, the reason this is also difficult is that there are good reasons why people don't quit pursuing some unreachable goal, like trying to get your kid off drugs or trying to help your spouse with cancer or trying to stop your own drinking. I mean, these are really poignant, intimate, deep life problems. And this is why you know, any generalization doesn't work. I'd say the, the deepest generalization I come to, the you know, way that evolution makes things more useful is, let's use our understanding of why low mood exists to talk in depth for hours with people about the details of their lives to try to figure out why it is they're stuck in some place instead of trying to have a simplistic solution. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you indulged me in that question anyway and that you're, you're gonna stick with us for the rest of this, right? I, I agreed to stay on this show. I look forward to the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific, okay. Uh, Paul, how about this? Depression does not exactly make you optimistic about the future. Is pessimism evolutionarily advantageous? Certainly can be. Uh, there's this concept in 
social and cognitive psychology called defensive pessimism. And it basically uh, involves uh, you take um, viewing uh, the future negatively so that you can prepare for uh, the a negative future by having backup plans. Like, oh, if the things don't work out the way I want them to do, I need to have a backup plan. That is called defensive pessimism. And that concept is, is very adaptive. And, uh, and that certainly plays a role in uh, the depressive states that I study as well, yeah. Hmm. Marianne, where are you on this notion of defensive pessimism? I, I haven't thought of it in terms of that, um, but I would say that, I, first of all, I'm an optimist, so this is really quite amusing to me in a way because I, I believe in the goodness of people and all that great stuff, but um, pessimism is very useful. You know, the, the rose-colored glasses have come off, you see things how they really are, and I think if you have um, a really good, firm idea of what sort of situations you're facing, and that might be there for pessimism, um, you're much more likely to be able to come up with a, a practical solution. So I, as I said, I, I haven't thought about in terms of defensive pessimism. I'm gonna, I like that idea, but I do think that uh, pessimism often leads to much more constructive problem solving. Randolph, how about you on that? So most of us, like Marianne said before, are optimistic most of the time. And when, when we're in the midst of doing something that isn't working, at some point it becomes better to not be so optimistic blindly and to be more realistic about the options. While you have the floor, let me try this with you. There's a long list of great thinkers and artists who have suffered from depression over the years. Do you think there is a link between depression and creativity that would explain why it has persisted over our evolutionary history. So that's an open question scientifically that I look forward to other people um, continuing to pursue. On the other hand, if you look at how many people want to write a novel and how many people want to break into big time rock and roll and all the rest, it's lots and lots of people. And how many people keep going? and keep going and keep going, very, very few. The only people who actually make it to the top in many of these fields are the ones who fail over and over again and keep trying, 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 trying. And guess what? That's the kind of situation that makes it likely that you're going to be depressed. So it might be more direction the other way, where pursuing grand goals, despite all kinds of obstacles, um, ends up causing depression. Um, and that's a, one reason why a lot of very creative, successful people are depressed. Hmm. Paul, can I get your take on that? Yeah, I like a lot of what Randy said there. I mean, um, the, the origin of the, the hypothesis that I uh, conduct research on really isn't a, a modern one. It's an ancient one. It goes back to the ancient Greeks. The idea, really, that um, depressive thinking is careful, methodical, analytical, and often creative. Uh, Theophrastus, who was a student of Aristotle, said that all great thinkers are likely to become melancholic. Hmm. Um, so, and, and really it, it shows its greatest manifestation over history around the Renaissance. I mean, the, the classic play of Hamlet by Shakespeare. Um, uh, Shakespeare in that play plays with the two different ideas about depression. One, it's a mental disorder that disrupts your thinking, and also that it's a source of careful, methodical, scientific thinking. Hamlet in that play ends up using his depression to figure out how his, that his uncle actually uh, killed his father. Hmm. Uh, and, and Shakespeare is very clear about that. Anyway, so that idea of creativity and analytical thinking and being tied to depression has a real ancient history. Um, so while I agree with Randy, we should be doing a lot more research, I just wanna point out that's a, 
that's an idea in our culture that has existed for a long period of time. Mm. Marianne, do you want to weigh in on that? Hey, uh, both people have said something really useful here to me. So, um, you know, Randy's point that science still has a long way to go. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. Um, and I also, you know, I think it's important that we do recognize that culturally we've made that tie between like the tortured soul and uh, and great works of creativity. But I, I would say that, um, you know, being being creative, I think, involves that that throwing risks to the wind and, and just going for it repeatedly and facing failure in most instances, repeatedly. And I don't see how that can lead to a happy state of feeling. It's just, you know, you, I think you'd have some low mood as a result of that constant um, feedback that it could be fail uh, to do with failure. So um, all the points raised, I think, really have a lot of merit there. Well, I know we are sort of discussing, as the title of Randolph's book would suggest, that there are good reasons for bad feelings. But having said that, is there a danger here, and Randolph, maybe you could start us off in this, is there a danger here of missing the obvious fact that depression is still a very debilitating disease and it is more often than not a bad thing? Can we say that? I'm so glad you brought that up because some people mis misunderstand my point and imagine that I'm saying that depression is usually useful. Uh, I'm not. In fact, even when the mechanisms in the brain and psychology are normal, most depression is not useful. And there are complicated reasons for that. So there are two chapters in my book, one about depression being useful, and the other is called When the Moodostat Fails. And you know, a lot of people who have that depression, it really is a brain or psychological problem. It is a disease. So it's so important to try to make that distinction. I think you can only make that distinction, however, if you get into the details of a person's life as an individual, in addition to their genes, hormones, and all the rest. Paul, how about you on that? Well, you know, this is where Randy and I will probably uh, agree to disagree. Uh, I mean- That's allowed I, here. <laughs> it's allowed, <laughs> right, good. Well. Um, I believe, uh, along with many other researchers, that our current diagnostic criteria for depression uh, tends to pathologize many normal emotional experiences. Um, so uh, I don't think that for most episodes of depression, even severe ones that last a long time, that there's anything really going wrong in the brain. Now, that doesn't mean that all episodes of depression produce adaptive or useful outcomes. But that's also true of just about every emotion. I think. Um, Marianne said that uh, earlier on in the in this talk. Um, you know, how many times do you know we get angry and it gets us into trouble, mm. or we experience unrequited love, which is almost by definition uh, a useless waste of time, right? Mm. But those are all part of normal human experiences, and we don't need to invoke any sort of disorder narrative uh, for uh, explaining that. So, do you see this more as disorder or as adaptation? I. I believe most of it is adaptation. Um, but that, again, I just want to say, doesn't mean that I believe that all outputs of that adaptation uh, produce are, are adaptive. I mean, again, I think almost every emotion produces maladaptive or harmful effects under certain circumstances. Uh, I don't know if, if Randy would agree uh, on that or I'm not. I'm going to ask him. Because okay. I, I feel an that. obligation to let him have a chance to come back at you. So go ahead. 
So the missing middle of this is whether normal mechanisms can give rise to a lot of useless anxiety and depression. Uh, I talk about something called the smoke detector principle. We all put up with smoke detectors that have false alarms because a false alarm is cheap uh, and not having an alarm when there's a big fire can be fatal. And so the system is set that way. Likewise, our brains are set that way. So there's a whole lot of very painful responses that are useless but normal. Marianne, do you want to break the tie here? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can, because for me, one of the issues is how we're defining depression, obviously. So um, from my understanding, when we talk about more to do with low mood and uh, smaller, shorter term bouts of depression, I would view that more as um, just part of our, our daily human experience. So it, just like another emotion, it's just an adaptation to our situation. Failing to recognize that something is causing you harm or is interfering in your relationships and so on, um, would have dramatic and, and really negative costs to you in, in terms of evolutionary history. Um, at the same time, I think, especially within um, longer term depression or other situations, there could be more at play, especially biologically. So I don't really have a tiebreaker uh, addition <laughs> here. So sorry about that, but I, I really think that it comes down to how we're thinking about depression. Well, you can't blame me for trying to stir up a little trouble here, can you? <laughs> there we go. Let me quote the science writer Robert Wright, who said, evolutionary psychology reminds us that we were not designed by natural selection to be enduringly happy or contented. Okay, that's the quote. Is one of the big takeaways here that evolution really doesn't give a darn about our happiness? Randolph, what do you say? Absolutely, and it's so sad, but we should pause here. It's a miracle and wonderful that so many people can be pretty happy much of the time. I mean, we should just pause and just thank, be thankful uh, that that's actually possible. If we watched, I would say mostly American, but occasionally Canadian cable television, we would never come away with that impression. So you sure you want to stick with that? I'll stick with it. Yes, indeed. Okay. Just if, see your friends instead of TV. That's it. Marianne, you want to uh, follow up on that? That was great, Randy. Um, you know, I, I view uh, I view people basically as strategists and opportunists. And, uh, you know, we're all striving to be happy. We're all striving for what's best for ourselves, you know, to some degree and best for our family and maybe best for our kins and, and uh, allies and friends and so on. But evolution itself doesn't care, I feel. It's, it's really, um, you know, happiness, I think, is part of our evolutionary history because it's a way of signaling to us that we're doing the right thing. And we're trying to, um, we're motivated rather to try in the right approaches that will help either improve our fitness or the likelihood of our children surviving, ourselves surviving and so on. Um, so I don't think evolution has any sort of goal that way. But I would say that it is really, as Randy pointed out, a miracle that uh, most of the time, most of us are fairly content. And that is remarkable. Hmm. Paul, we heard uh, Randolph say earlier that uh, most people who never have a sad moment in their lives end up not living very long. Do you think being content and happy all the time, is that an evolutionary disadvantage? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that our nervous system, uh, evolution has given our nervous system the capacity to feel so many different kinds of feelings, you know, uh, painful feelings. You know, you can think about all the different pain receptors that allow us to feel the pain of hot or cold or smashing objects or um, cutting objects, et cetera. And then with our emotions, we have all sorts of painful feelings, shame, guilt, sadness, depression, anxiety, fear, et cetera. They're there for reasons. Um, and, and as 
you know, as Randy said, yeah, I mean, if people who uh, have lack the ability to feel pain have very short lives. And that's probably true with depression too. Depression has its place in our life. We need to figure out what it is that depression does. Um, but the other thing that I would say is, like Randy, uh, I'm not of the opinion that just because depression might be evolved and do something uh, useful, uh, that doesn't mean uh, we should like glorify it or say that people shouldn't seek out treatment or help. But I do think that understanding whether or not depression is an evolved adaptation that uh, natural selection has given us, mm. or it's a disorder where something's going wrong in the brain, those will determine which therapy may be best uh, for, for the treating, mm. right? So understanding etiology, the cause of a condition like depression, whether it's a disorder or a normal uh, emotional state, that's crucial to how we treat. Ranova, uh, we just heard Paul say we shouldn't glorify depression, but don't we tend to do that? Don't we look back and look at the Ernest Hemingways of the world and say, my goodness, they were so magnificent and they lived amidst all of this depression and look at what wonderful things they created. Sounds like we do glorify. I think we do sometimes, yep. And, you know, we haven't mentioned bipolar disease. That's really quite a different kettle of fish than the kinds of depression we've been talking about. And it might well be the case that many people with bipolar disease do have special kinds of creativity and pay a terrible price for it. So, again, it's complicated and we need to ask people one by one to try to understand things. Hmm. Down to our last couple of minutes here, Marianne, let me put this to you. What are the practical applications of looking at depression and mental illness through this evolutionary lens? I think the the be biggest benefit is understanding that um, depression is part of who we are. And, you know, when people ask you how you're feeling and you say, oh, I'm happy, they go, great, I'm busy, great. But when you say um, I'm experiencing low mood or I'm feeling depressed, uh, you know, if they really care, they're going to say, oh, what's going on? And if you really care about them, you would actually be honest and say you're feeling that low mood and depressed. So I think the benefit to having that ev evolutionary approach is that it teaches us that um, you know, the stigma we have in place about depression doesn't need to be there. It can be removed and it can allow us to reach out maybe more freely if we view it as part of our evolutionary heritage. It's not something that you in particular may have done within um, your own life situation that's caused it. So I think it, it might help us to uh, be a bit more free about discussing it and ha having that um, the weight of evolutionary psychology behind us to begin to unpackage what's going on for the individual. But I would like to point out that... Um, Randy made one really important point, I felt, and that was that, you know, we can't have these broad generalizations across individuals. And in psychology, especially, I think we're very aware that we have to have individualized forms of treatment. And I think evolutionary psychology here would be one part of that treatment or one part of that discussion. Um, and of course, we need to understand individuals a lot, a lot deeper to really have that benefit overall. Sure. Randall, practical applications of looking at this through an evolutionary lens? So actually, an article was just published two days ago by Hans Schroeder, a colleague of mine at University of Michigan, where he did a study looking at the implications of how we view our own depression. And one group of people were given the idea that depression is a brain disease and that's it. And, and other people were told it's more like what Marianne was saying and Paul is saying, that it's a part of our lives and it has functional significance. It turns out that 
thinking about one's own depression as you know, just a product of the brain without thinking more deeply about it makes people passive and pessimistic about their ability to get better. I'm gonna give a once, half a second, half a minute case. I once saw a sad, sad kid who had been living in his parents' basement for years, and he came in and said, we gotta do something different. I've tried seven different drugs, you've gotta find one. I said, well, what else can we talk about? He says, well, I know it's a brain disease, and I'm just waiting until find some, someone finds the right drug. I said, you gotta get out of the basement, man. And he <laughs> said, no, it's a brain disease, we just have to wait. So this is a situation where I think our evolutionary framework helps people uh, to take a broader, less stigmatizing view of their own problems. Paul, last word to you on this. Yeah, well, I agree a lot with my colleagues here. Um, I'm gonna come back to the idea that uh, most depression probably is a normal emotional response. Um, but uh, with all of our adaptations, with our heart or eyes or whatever, they can all malfunction at some rate. So. Um, uh, I believe that an evolutionary understanding will be better at helping us to understand uh, the normal depressed state as a normal emotional experience. And those instances, probably much fewer, where there is something really going wrong in the brain. Uh, and once we have a good understanding of the or you know, how to dis uh, distinguish and identify the two different types, we're gonna be in a much better position for uh, figuring out uh, how to treat. Again, I think uh, something like a psychotherapy really works well under a model of uh, this is a normal emotional response, whereas psycho uh, pharma uh, pharmaceutical drugs are much more uh, understandable under a disorder framework. Gotcha. That was fascinating, you three. Thank you so much for coming on to TVO tonight and having this conversation. Randolph Nessie in Brighton, Michigan, Marianne Fisher, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Paul Andrews of McMaster University here in our studio. All good wishes, everybody. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very so much, much, Steve. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.